Okay, today we're going to move on to Hume's argument concerning induction in earnest. We've got quite a lot to cover here, uh, and I've prepared quite a lot of slides for you, but I'm not going to be going through them all in detail. Uh, I shall allude to them as we pass and leave you to read them at your leisure. So first of all, let's have a quick look at how Hume gets to the topic of induction in the treatise. And in the treatise, he approaches the topic from the direction of causation. Uh, we've seen before how he develops this theory of relations, and one of the important implications of his theory of relations is that probability, probable argument, is particularly concerned with the relation of causation. So in Book 1, Part 3 of the treatise, he starts off analysing the concept of causation and quickly goes in the direction of induction. So, um, this is a reference back to Treatise 132. We want to understand reasoning to the unobserved, that is probable reasoning, so we need to look at the idea of causation. Let's see uh, where it comes from. And the search for the idea of causation is essentially going to structure the rest of this part of the treatise. He points out that there's no specific quality that we find in all causes and effects, so it must be some relation between cause and effect. Well, we typically find that causes and effects are contiguous in time and space, they're close to each other, um, though he has a footnote that suggests that might not be such an absolute truth. Indeed, later, he's going to talk about impressions and ideas having causal relations, even though they are not spatially located. This comes in Treatise 145. And he refers forward to that here. Uh, we also find causes to be prior to their effects. Though Hume gives an argument for that, but he doesn't seem to want to insist on it very much. He says, well, if you're happy with this argument, that's fine. If not, don't worry about it. Let's move on. Uh, what's clear is that Hume's real interest is in the other component of the idea of cause. Now, this passage is quite a famous one, but it's commonly misinterpreted. Shall we, this, th shall we then rest contented with these two relations of contiguity and succession as affording a complete idea of causation? By no means. An object may be contiguous and prior to another without being considered as its cause. There is a necessary connection to be taken into consideration, and that relation is of much greater importance than, than any of the other two above mentioned. That is contiguity and priority. Now, it's commonly read here. People commonly look at this passage and say, there you are. Hume's a believer in necessary connection as part of causation, not just constant conjunction as he's famously alleged uh, to reduce causation to. Actually, this passage says nothing of the kind. He's not mentioned constant conjunction yet. He's saying that there is something in addition to individual contiguity and individual priority. He's looking at single cases of causes and effects so far. And now what he's trying to do is... I is find this elusive element, the necessary connection. He realises that you can easily have two things close together and one following another without it being the cause. 
So he now goes off to look for this extra element that he's called necessary connection. So we'll see a reference back to that passage before long. Now, he says, rather puzzlingly, that since I've no idea where I'm going to find this extra element, I'm going to go beating around neighbouring fields and try and find it. Hope something turns up. And the first neighbouring field he goes to is the causal maxim. It is a general maxim in philosophy that whatever begins to exist must have a cause of existence. And then he asks, why is it that we believe that? He comes to the conclusion that it is not provable, it's not intuitively true, and it's not demonstrable. Uh, So he seems to hint in this last passage that it must arise from experience. It must be that experience gives rise to this idea that whatever begins to exist must have a cause. Um, Actually, he never returns to this question. So it remains a little bit elusive exactly what he thinks. Uh, I think the textual evidence is, and I explained this more fully in last year's lectures, which you can look at if you wish, um, that Hume did in fact think that experience gives us reason to believe that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Okay, having left that behind, he then goes on to uh, discuss the nature of causal reasoning. And here in 135, in the first paragraph, he sets out an agenda for the next few parts of the treatise. Here, therefore, we have three things to explain, viz. first, the original impression, secondly, the transition to the idea of the connected cause or effect, thirdly, the nature and qualities of that idea. So he's focusing on a causal inference, as he says, from the impression to the idea, an inference where we get the impression of a cause and we infer the effect. So we form a lively idea of the effect. And he's going to discuss in the following sections the nature of this inference. So 135, we get this rather strange title of the impressions of the senses and memory. That seems a bit odd because uh, the memory doesn't give impressions, it gives ideas, lively ideas. But his main point seems to be that ideas of the memory are sufficiently lively that they can play much the same role as sensory impressions. So when we infer that something uh, is going to happen, we can either appeal to things that we sense or things that we remember, and they have much the same effect in terms of our belief. So let's just recap where we've been and how we've got here. Uh, This is... Uh, how we get to Treatise 136. He's seeking to understand the idea of necessary connection. That leads him to ask why we conclude that particular causes must necessarily have particular effects and why we form an inference from one to another. Then he focuses on this key part, the inference from the impression to the idea. Let's call that causal inference. And now we get to the famous argument concerning induction. Okay, so now we come to the famous argument concerning induction, uh, which appears for the first time in Treatise 136. Uh, But notice that there are three versions of this argument in Hume's writings. The other two are in the abstract of 1740 and the inquiry concerning human understanding of 1748. What's particularly interesting here is that the abstract argument, which appeared only about uh, nine months or so after Hume had published the first book of the treatise, 
has an, the version of the argument there is nearly as long as the version in the treatise, even though the abstract is a tiny piece of work compared to the treatise books one and two, of which it was supposed to be an abstract. So it's clear that between the time when the, treatise, the first book of the treatise was published and just nine months later, Hume came to realize that this argument was vastly more important than he had portrayed it as being in the treatise. In the inquiry, this argument becomes the centerpiece of the whole work. Section 4 is one of the longest and almost certainly the key part. If you look for the part around which the others turn, it's the most important. So in discussing this argument, I'm going to be comparing these versions, particularly the treatise and the inquiry, to try to get a picture of what Hume is really trying to do with this argument and where he sees it as leading. Now, in the treatise, as we've seen, Hume's main focus is on causal inference. He's talking about the inference from the impression to the idea. That is, you get an impression of an A, you see an A, you find yourself inferring a B, so you form a lively idea of a B. And that's rather narrow. In the abstract and the inquiry, Hume starts the argument very differently. He says, what is the nature of that evidence which assures us of any real existence and matter of fact beyond the present testimony of our senses or the records of our memory? So he's not just asking about causal inference, he's asking about any inference at all that goes beyond what we perceive or remember. Any probable inference. And we'll see later that enables the argument to be significantly streamlined. The first thing he does in both the abstract and the inquiry is to argue that all such inference, let's call it inductive inference or probable inference or matter-of-fact inference, or any such inference depends on causal relations. So now he can go on with his discussion just as in the treatise where he started with causal inference. But the great advantage of making this initial step is that any conclusions he now reaches about causal inference will apply to any probable inference, any inference that goes beyond uh, memory and senses. So, in the treatise, Hume argues like this. He says, well, any causal inference, the first point about it is it cannot be a priori, because we can conceive of things turning out differently. When we see an A and we infer a B, we can at least conceive that A could have happened without B. So the inference from A to B cannot be a priori. Now, in order to argue like that, Hume has to be taking for granted that any a priori inference would yield total certainty. And if you think about it, that's not so obvious. Hume takes it to be obvious, at least he seems to there, but it isn't. Why shouldn't an a priori inference sometimes yield just probability? Like when you throw a die in the air and you judge that each side has a one-sixth probability of coming down uh, face up. That looks kind of a priori. Why shouldn't it be? But it yields probability, not certainty. So there's a, a slightly unfortunate assumption here uh, in the treatise argument. Now, in the abstract and the inquiry, Hume argues more strongly. Um, to start with, he brings in a thought experiment. He imagines Adam, just created by God, trying to imagine what will happen when one billiard ball hits the other. This is actually from the abstract where he, he, he brings in this example. And 
Put yourself in Adam's position. You've never seen one thing strike another before in your life. You've only just been created with the faculties that God's given you. They're very good faculties, as human faculties go, but you've got no experience, no memory to call on. How could you know what, what will happen when one ball hits the other? And Hume says, no way you could. You can guess what might happen, but any guess will be completely arbitrary. You've no better reason for choosing one thing rather than another. Perhaps this ball will move, perhaps that one will jump up in the air, perhaps this will turn into an elephant. No, he hasn't seen elephants yet. But goodness knows what will happen. Anything could. So the argument that Hume is giving here, notice that it is different from the one in the treatise. He's not just saying you can conceive of other things happening, therefore this inference can't be a priori. He's saying a priori, you can't give any reason for this happening rather than something else. Your choice is completely arbitrary, therefore you haven't got an a priori inference there. Were any object presented to us and were we required to pronounce concerning the effect which will result from it without consulting past observation, after what manner, I beseech you, must the mind proceed in this operation? It must invent or imagine some event which it ascribes to the object as its effect, and it's plain that this invention must be entirely arbitrary. So in the inquiry, he actually spends quite a lot of time spelling out this argument. Um, and it seems to me, at any rate, to be a lot stronger than the corresponding argument in the treatise. Okay, reverting back to the treatise now, Hume explains what kind of experience causal inference is based on. He said that it can't be a priori, that it must be based on experience. What kind of experience? Well, experience of regularities. We see A followed by B again and again, and then when we see an A, we naturally infer a B. That's how it goes, isn't it? Oh, look, we've just discovered a new relation betwixt cause and effect when we least expected it. This relation is their constant conjunction. Now, remember that passage that I mentioned before and said it was commonly misinterpreted, the one that has necessary connection in capitals? Well, notice this one has constant conjunction in capitals, and it's clearly alluding back to that earlier sentence. Uh, look also at the content of this. Contiguity and succession are not sufficient to make us pronounce any two objects to be cause and effect unless these two relations are preserved in several instances. That is, there is a constant conjunction. If you read this passage with the earlier one from 1, 3, 2, 11, they are clearly referring to each other. So there's no evidence here for any view of causation as involving something other than constant conjunction, but we'll be discussing that in a later lecture. So how does constant conjunction help? How can that give rise to the idea of necessary connection that Hume's seeking? Well, this is quite an important passage. I put it here. It's more really to do with the discussion of causation than induction, um, but it's actually a very nice epitome of Hume's thought. Perhaps it will appear in the end that the necessary connection depends on the inference instead of the inferences depending on the necessary connection. Hume will ultimately argue that the idea of necessary connection comes from our making causal inferences. It's not that we make causal inferences because we ascribe a necessary connection. It's the other way around. Okay, so he's... Um, 
he now poses the, the question of 136. Uh, he's established that inference from A to B, causal inference from the impression to the idea, is based on experience and remembrance of their constant conjunction. Okay, the next question is whether experience produces the idea, that's the idea of the effect, the belief in the effect, by means of the understanding or imagination, whether we're determined by reason to make the transition or by a certain association and relation of perceptions. And Hume, of course, is going to argue that it can't be reason and therefore it must be the imagination. And we'll be coming back later uh, to try to make sense of exactly what this all means. Okay, so let's sum up. And this summing up is um, equally valid for all three versions of the argument. He's shown that inference from A to B uh, is, has to be based on causation. Knowledge of causal relations all comes from experience. Learning from experience clearly requires that observed phenomena can be extrapolated. I mean, what's the difference between Adam when he's trying to predict what will happen with the billiard balls first off and Adam a week later when he's seen lots of billiard balls and is presented with another one? What difference does the experience make to him? Well, it must be, mustn't it, that he is able to extrapolate from the billiard balls that he has experienced to those he hasn't yet. So we can ask the question, do we have any rational basis for extrapolating from observed to unobserved? So in the treatise, what we now get is a very explicit uniformity principle. He says, if reason determined us, that is to extrapolate from observed to unobserved, it would proceed upon that principle that instances of which we have had no experience must resemble those of which we have had experience and that the course of nature continues always uniformly the same. Now, that's a very famous statement. Um, I actually don't like it very much. I think the formulations that he puts in his later works are better. It gives the impression of a very, very specific principle. But also it's misleading in another way. It says, if reason determined us, it would proceed upon that principle. Which makes it look, doesn't it, that if reason has nothing to do with it, that principle too may have nothing to do with it. It looks like this, this, this principle is only need be used if reason is doing the business, if reason isn't, forget about it. But actually, every other mention of this principle gives a different impression. In the abstract and the inquiry, that's very clear. But look, here, even in the treatise, just... Uh, what, three paragraphs later, probability is founded on the presumption of a resemblance. No conditionality there. He's saying quite clearly that any argument of this form takes for granted resemblance of unobserved to observed. So in the inquiry, you can see um, a similar kind of thing. All our experimental conclusions proceed upon the supposition that the future will be conformable to the past. No conditionality there. He's not saying if reason determined us, it would make this assumption. No, we make this assumption when we do it. Um, also, the principle is, looks rather vaguer. 
the supposition that the future will be conformable to the past. It's not come out with a very implausible principle like the treatise. I mean, look at the treatise principle. That instances of, we have, of which we have had no experience must resemble those of which we have had experience. Come on. Every swan we've seen has been white, so every swan we ever see has to be white. That's surely too strong. Whereas the future will be conformable to the past, much more general. The same kind of laws will apply in the future as in the past. Now, <clears throat> what's the role of the uniformity principle here? One thing is clear from what Hume says elsewhere in the treatise. I've mentioned uh, treatise 138.13. Hume cannot be thinking that when we make an inductive inference, we consciously think to ourselves, ah, the future will resemble the past. I suspect that it's because he doesn't want to say that that he had that element of conditionality in his first expression of the principle. Looking at his later writings on induction, it seems much more that what Hume is saying is that when we make an inductive inference, we ipso facto take for granted that the future will resemble the past. By our inferential behaviour, we manifest that assumption. But then the question still arises, can this assumption be justified? Can we give a rational basis for this principle of extrapolation that we manifest whenever we make such an inference? Well, in the treatise he goes like this. In order, therefore, to clear up this matter, let us consider all the arguments upon which such a proposition may be supposed to be founded. That's the proposition of uniformity. And as these must be derived either from knowledge or probability, let's consider both of those. Knowledge, by the way, it's absolutely clear Hume's means demonstrative argument because he immediately goes on to consider that. So notice that Hume here is taking for granted that if the uniformity principle is to have a rational foundation, it must be based on either demonstrative argument or probable argument. Well, he famously rules these out. Um, he rules out any possible demonstration of uniformity because we can conceive a, cha we can conceive a change in the course of nature. And anything that's conceivable can't be de demonstrated to be false. So there's no demonstrative argument for it, and there's no probable argument for the uniformity principle. Why? Well, he's argued, hasn't he, that all causal inference takes for granted the uniformity principle. So all he needs to show is that probable inference involves causation, and having shown that, he can then say, well, trying to produce a probable argument for the uniformity principle, which is itself the basis of causal inference, will be going in a circle. Now, if you think back to that slide earlier where I said that in the abstract and the inquiry he streamlines his argument by starting off right at the beginning saying probable argument depends on causation, it means that he has no need in those versions of the argument for this bit. He doesn't have to recapitulate some of his argument. So the argument is smoother than it is in the treatise. But there's more than that. We saw that in the treatise, Hume assumes that demonstration and probability are the only possible foundations for the uniformity principle. In the inquiry, he goes to the trouble of ruling out sensation and intuition as well. So look at this passage here. There is no known connection 
between the sensible qualities and the secret powers. Sensible qualities, the perceivable sensory qualities of objects, like of the billiard balls, and the secret powers, the powers that they manifest in how they behave, like bouncing off each other. And consequently, the mind is not led to form such a conclusion concerning their constant and regular conjunction, that is, it's not led to infer uniformity by anything which it knows of their nature. Just as Adam, looking at the billiard balls, looking at their shape and size and colour and so on, could not possibly infer what the powers would be, couldn't infer how they would behave, it follows that Adam couldn't either infer that they would behave consistently. So uniformity cannot be implied by anything that we sense, nor is it intuitive. It's not intuitively obvious. It's not self-evident that uh, the unobserved will resemble the observed. So the argument in the inquiry is fuller than the argument in the treatise. We'll come back to that shortly. So here is the conclusion of Hume's argument, and we're going to discuss to what extent it's a sceptical conclusion. Even after experience has informed us of causal constant conjunction, it is impossible for us to satisfy ourselves by our reason why we should extend that experience beyond those particular instances which have fallen under our observation. And again from the inquiry, even after we have experience of the operations of cause and effect, our conclusions from that experience are not founded on reasoning or any process of the understanding. In all reasonings from experience, there is a step taken by the mind which is not supported by any argument or process of the understanding. That's the extrapolative step, where we assume that the unobserved will resemble the observed. It can't be proved demonstrably. It can't be proved by probable argument. Nothing that we sense tells us that it must be so, and it's not intuitively true. So we've got no way of establishing it. So here's a summary of the argument in the version that you get in the inquiry. And I'll, I'll just talk you through this. The key, P is probable inference. C is causal reasoning. E, reasoning from experience. U is the uniformity principle. Capital R for reason. D for demonstration. I for intuition. S for sensation. And it actually has a very neat structure. So he starts by arguing right at the top that probable inference is based on the relation of causation. But since the second one down, anything we know about causation is founded on experience, it therefore follows that probable reasoning must be founded on experience. But any reasoning from experience has to be founded on an assumption of uniformity, because only via an assumption of uniformity can you draw conclusions from the past to the future, from the experienced to the unexperienced. Therefore, we get that uh, probable inference is founded on the uniformity principle. And you can see there's a very clear logic to this. Okay, now, si since probable inference is founded on the uniformity principle, it follows that you cannot found the uniformity principle on probable reasoning, because that would be going in a circle. So that's the circularity point he makes. But nor can the uniformity principle be founded on demonstration, because we can conceive of it being false. Therefore, the uniformity principle is not founded on reason. But if probable reasoning is founded on the uniformity principle and the uniformity principle is not founded on reason, 
Hume concludes that probable reasoning is not founded on reason. Now in the inquiry you get these two extra stages that the uniformity principle cannot be founded on intuition nor can it be founded on sensation. So I think that nicely sums up uh, the entire argument. Of course there's a little bit of shoehorning there to fit it into a neat structure and I'm using the founded on relation in a, in a, a very wide-ranging way, somewhat as Hume does. Um, and I think this does shed light on how his thought is going. So in the inquiry, he seems to be arguing like this. If the uniformity principle isn't founded on sensation, and it's not founded on intuition, and it's not founded on demonstration, and it's not founded on probability, then it's not founded on reason. That seems to be implicitly how Hume is reasoning. And then if you look at this passage, which we've seen before from the letter from a gentleman, it's common for philosophers to distinguish the kinds of evidence into intuitive, demonstrative, sensible, in other words, sensory, and moral, i.e. probable. So it looks very much as though what Hume's argument is doing is knocking out all the possible evidential props for the uniformity principle and therefore concluding that it is not founded on reason. This makes it look very much like a sceptical argument. Now actually the interpretation of Hume's argument is very fraught. Uh, there are lots of different interpretations, uh, some of which I've listed here. And some people think that Hume's a deductivist, he's just taking for granted that only deductive arguments are any good. Uh, Stroud came out with a well-known interpretation that isn't deductivist, but nevertheless interprets Hume as an extreme sceptic. Uh, a whole load of people, in the, uh, especially in the 1980s, came out with the claim that Hume, Hume's argument is a deductivist one, but the idea is to refute deductivism, not to vindicate it. Uh, I came out with an argument claiming that Hume was, in a similar kind of spirit in a way, trying to refute the idea that induction could be founded on uh, any kind of perceptual insight. Uh, Don Garrett, 1997, a very influential interpretation, argued that what Hume is saying is that induction is not founded on reasoning. Reasoning, not reason, uh, in, in, in the way that many people would assume it to be. He's not saying it's unreasonable, he's saying it's not founded on any kind of reasoning. Uh, David Owen, whoops, sorry. David Owen um, came out with a somewhat similar interpretation to Garrett's, but he was claiming that Hume was trying to refute the claim that induction was founded on a stepwise inference. So Owen took this to be a paradigmatic of Locke's view of reason. And then my current view, uh, recently uh, written up, is that I think Hume is arguing that induction isn't founded on cognition. So what I'm going to do briefly is go through some points here and point you in the direction of stuff that you can look at. So these different readings all correspond broadly with different views of what Hume means by reason. Understanding what Hume mean, is saying on induction comes down to understanding what Hume means by the faculty of reason. I've already said something about that in an earlier lecture about Hume's faculty structure. You can see now why that's quite important. Here are some points to bear in mind. After the argument concerning induction, when Hume is 
presenting two other very bigger arguments of his, very important arguments. One of them um, to do with the external world, one of them to do with morality. He very clearly includes inductive inference as an operation of reason. With regard to reason, the only conclusion we can draw from the existence of one thing to that of another is by means of the relation of cause and effect. What? I thought in 136, Hume, you had said that induction is nothing to do with reason. Yet causal reasoning is not real reasoning, or nothing to do with the faculty of reason at any rate. And here you are saying that reason enables us to draw inferences from the relation of cause and effect. The second quote is even stronger. Reason in a strict and philosophical sense can have an influence on our conduct by informing us of the existence of something which is a proper object of a passion or when it discovers the connection of causes and effects so as to afford us means of exerting any passion. He's clearly saying that reason discovers connections of causes and effects and he can only mean probable reasoning because deductive reasoning certainly doesn't do it. Now, very briefly, I'm going to cut down the competition between these different interpretations to just two. And I'm going to give some reasons for thinking that the others are just, just have to be wrong. First of all, Hume is not an extreme, undiscriminating sceptic. He's a very keen advocate of inductive science. The vast majority of the stuff that Hume wrote is constructive uh, he wrote a big history, he wrote essays on economics, he wrote essays on political theory, he dis wrote lots of discussions of religion in which he's clearly pro-science, he's anti-superstition, but pro-science. You can only make sense of that contrast, being pro-science, anti-superstition, if you think science has something going for it, right? So people like Flew and Stove have, just have to be wrong. If, if Hume is the way they think he is, he's terrifically inconsistent. I don't think the structure of the argument makes any sense if people like Beecham and co. are, wrong, uh, are correct. Because according to Beecham's account, Hume has a very, very narrow view of reason, but it's not his own view. He's, he's just attacking it. But we saw that in the argument concerning induction, Hume doesn't just say the uniformity principle can't be based on demonstration. He also argues that it can't be based on probability. If he started out thinking that probable inference wasn't worthy of the name, that the only kind of inference worth having was deductive inference, then his argument wouldn't make any sense. Both my previous interpretation and that of David Owen face the objection that Hume does not apparently reject the view of reason operative in his argument. This is quite an important point. The vast majority of the interpretations of Hume on induction that have come out over the, since, what, 1975, because they have tried to, to combine the negativity of Hume's argument with his positive view of inductive science, they've all come out saying, or most of them have, saying that the view of reason that Hume uses in his argument is not his own. What he's trying to do is show that some other person's view of reason you know, Locke's or Descartes or whatever, can't do what reason is supposed to do, and therefore it's useless. So they've argued that Hume, when he presents his argument in 136, is not actually using his own view of reason. Now, 
the trouble is there's nothing in the text where Hume acknowledges that, not at all. And as we've seen, there are cases in arguments that follow 136 where Hume quite explicitly includes inductive inference as part of reason. So I'm just going to reduce the field to two interpretations that conform with that. And those are basically Don Garrett's interpretation and my own um, one that I've, is com coming out in a, a, a book of, um, edited by Dan O'Brien this year. But I'm happy to make it available to you. So Garrett and I now agree on a fair number of points. Um, he stood for many years arguing that reason is not ambiguous. I disagreed with him. I now agree with him. I don't think it is ambiguous. I also think it's important to realize in discussing this, we'll come back to this when we consider Hume on skepticism, but I don't think we should view Hume as doing the same kind of thing as Descartes tries to do. He sees no obligation to prove our faculties reliable a priori. So whereas Descartes starts out, when he, when he addresses the skeptic, he says, here are all these skeptical arguments. I'm going to give the match to you unless I can refute you. He tries to refute the skeptic. Now, Hume doesn't do that, and I suggest you go and take a look at the paragraph, the third paragraph of section 12 of the inquiry, where Hume discusses Cartesian skepticism. And he basically says, if you go the, the Cartesian way, you're just digging yourself into a pit and throwing away your tools. If you can't trust your faculties without first proving your faculties to be reliable, you've had it. Because the only thing you could use to prove your faculties to be reliable are your faculties. So that's obviously hopeless. So let's start with a default assumption that we can trust our faculties. And if we find problems with them, fair enough. But the onus is on the other foot, as it were. Now that's not clear in the treatise, which is why to understand human um, scepticism, it's ever so important to read section 12 of the inquiry. It's not a very long section, but it's very informative. It's Hume's mature treatment of scepticism. Okay. So the key disagreement between Garrett's interpretation and my own is that Garrett says that when Hume talks about reason, he means reasoning. For Hume, as for Locke, reason is the faculty of reasoning, of making inferences or providing, appreciating, and being moved by arguments. Whereas I think reason is the overall cognitive faculty. Another word for the understanding or the intellectual faculties. So what I'm going to do now is just give a very quick skip through um, reasons for taking this view. Is it all right if I stop at that point? Well, it has to be now after I've said that, doesn't it? Because I have got another handout which I didn't want to muddy the waters with at the beginning. Pass those back very quickly. Thank you very much. I'll be finishing on the hour. That won't bother the thing.
Okay, so let's quickly look at some reasons for being a bit doubtful about Garrett's interpretation. I think when one first hears it, it seems very tempting. You think, oh, Hume is saying that induction is not founded on reasoning. That looks quite plausible because, after all, he shows that the uniformity principle can't be founded on demonstrative or probable reasoning, doesn't he? And reason and reasoning sound very similar. So I just want to point out that in the 18th century, the connection of reasoning with ratiocination was much less close. We tend to think of reasoning as, as involving stepwise inference, going step by step through a complex argument. But in the 18th century, reasoning was just the, oper the, the, the operation of the faculty of reason. And reason was taken, as I've said, to be, in general, the cognitive faculty, the faculty by which we come to know truth and falsehood. So I've given some examples there from Johnson's dictionary of points that count in favor of this. Um, and it seems to me clear from Johnson's dictionary that the words he uses when he wants to refer to stepwise ratiocination are not reasoning, but rather ratiocination and deduction. Now, Hume's usage conforms with this. Uh, Hume does not restrict words like proof and argument and reasoning to cases where there is stepwise inference. On the contrary. And notice, incidentally, his own theory of inductive reasoning implies that when we reason inductively, most of the time, we're doing it just in a single step. We're not actually going through some complex uh, ratiocinative process. Now let's look at Garrett's uh, conclusion as he presents it in 1997. Hume is making a specific claim within cognitive psychology about the relation between our tendency to make inductive inferences and our inferential argumentative faculty. He's arguing that we do not adopt induction on the basis of recognizing an argument for its reliability. Now, <clears throat> One objection to uh, Garrett's interpretation here is that Hume also rules out intuition as well as ratiocination. Uh, this is something we've seen in the inquiry. Now, Garrett's re response to that is to say, OK, I'll change my conclusion. It's not just that Hume is ruling out reasoning. He's also re re uh, ruling out intuition. And Garrett, quite clearly there, is thinking of intuition as a different operation of the understanding. But here there's a tension, because as we've seen before in an earlier lecture, Hume tends to use the word reason and the understanding as equivalent. Uh, we've got lots and lots of cases where Hume uses the word reason and the use of the word understanding interchangeably. So that makes it look much more like a general cognitive faculty than specific, specifically a faculty of ratiocination. Now, Gareth has actually acknowledged this in a recent discussion um, that was published this year. That we, we had a kind of debate in Edinburgh um, on the occasion of Hume's 300th birthday. And Garrett now takes the view, he acknowledges that reason and, induction, uh, reason and understanding for Hume are one and the same, but he suggests that Hume uses the word understanding now to refer just to argument. 
But that doesn't fit with the first book of the treatise. Right? The first book of the treatise of the understanding deals with all sorts of operations involving ideas as well as inference. So I don't think that's historically plausible. There's also a tension in his um, view because he sees the claim about induction being founded on argument as a conclusion in cognitive science. He wants to say that Hume is talking about what it is that goes on in our heads when we make an inductive inference. It's not a piece of epistemology. But then if you look at the quotation from the way he expresses his view, we do not adopt induction on the basis of recognizing an argument for its reliability. That looks ever so like a claim in epistemology. Why should we be so concerned about arguments for its reliability if our real concern is with simply the mechanism that's going on in our minds? Well, anyway, in 2002, Garrett changed the um, expression of his view. He now wants to say, Hume is making a specific claim within cognitive psychology about the underlying causal mechanism that gives rise to inductive inference, namely that it is not itself dependent on any reasoning or inference. Now, this makes the claim a rather vaguer one. It started out as a claim that seemed very clear, and now it's not nearly as clear. Um, and in answer to a challenge from me, he, he wanted to clarify this as well. Millikan understandably infers that on my interpretation, it is only the general practice of induction that fails to be determined by reason, and each of our particular inductive inferences is itself an instance of the operation of our reason. So... He wants to say that natural interpretation of the way he expressed himself was actually wrong, and the conclusion he draws applies to every single inductive inference. It's not just a conclusion about how we start making inductive inferences. But there's a real problem here for Garrett's interpretation. Because if the claim, if his claim concerns every individual inductive inference, and is a claim about the psychological mechanism that's involved in them, not the epistemology, then it's unclear why what I call here lack of ratiocinative causation should be inherited by a later argument that starts from a previously established lemma. Let me spell that out. Take, look at the last step in the logic of this argument. Here we've got the probable inferences founded on the uniformity principle, and here we've got that the uniformity principle is not founded on reason. And the conclusion is that probable inference is not founded on reason. Now, how does that make any sense if founded on reason means founded on argument? I don't see how it can, because what this is saying is that the uniformity principle is not founded on argument. All right, maybe it's not. Maybe we just imagine it. Maybe God puts it into our minds. Maybe we get it from who knows where. This says probable inference is founded on the uniformity principle. Fine, so that makes it sound as though we argue on the basis of the uniformity principle to do a probable inference. That's entirely compatible with probable inference being founded on argument, namely argument involving the uniformity principle. What's the problem? So basically the inference doesn't work. The fact that 
the uniformity principle isn't founded on argument, if that's true, in no way implies that something that's founded on the uniformity principle can't be founded on argument. So, as an epistemological claim, it makes sense. If you think the uniformity principle has no solid foundation and inductive inference is founded on the uniformity principle, takes it for granted, then you can conclude that induction doesn't have a solid foundation. So as an epistemological argument, it makes sense. As an argument in cognitive science, I don't think it does. So we get a non sequitur in uh, Hume's argument, I think, on Garrett's account. Another problem is this. Suppose Hume was trying to show that inductive inference is not founded on argument, and that's it. It's not founded on ratiocination, stepwise inference. Why should Hume restrict his attention to good argument? Maybe induction could be founded on bad argument. Why not? Well, Hume obviously recognises that our arguments can be bad. Here are some examples from his texts. Um, And Hume actually goes to the trouble when he's discussing the causal maxim of ruling out various would-be demonstrative arguments for the causal maxim. But if we were able to have an argument for the causal maxim that everything that begins to exist must have a cause, then plausibly we can also use that as a basis for induction. Well, that's exactly what Richard Price did in 1758. The conviction produced by experience, in other words induction, is built on the same principle because we see intuitively that there being some reason or cause of the constancy of event, it must be derived from causes regularly and constantly operating. And the more frequently and uninterruptedly we knew this had happened, the stronger would be our expectation of it happening again. What Price is saying here is this. We know by intuition that every change must have a cause. We therefore have intuitive knowledge that things will go on in the same way at the ultimate level. There has to be some cause for any change. Therefore, induction is reasonable. Now, Hume obviously won't agree that Price's claim about the causal maxim is correct, but the problem is that if all Hume wanted to argue was that induction cannot be founded on argument, well, here is an argument given by Price allegedly to found induction, and Hume can't knock it out. He might be able to say it's a bad argument, but he can't rule out that we might, we might actually make inductive inferences on the basis of such an argument. So if the argument is interpreted in Garrett's way as a claim of cognitive science, a claim of the processes that go on in our mind, I don't, first of all, Hume cannot rule out that we are we do so on the basis of bad argument. Secondly, here is an exact contemporary of his coming out with an argument which purports to do exactly that and which he couldn't rule out. Okay, I'm not going to go through the rest of the slides. I'll leave you to read those. But I'm simply going to point out, here are some quotes where Hume clearly says that reason is the cognitive faculty. It's the faculty by which we discern truth and falsehood. And I think reading Hume's argument in that way makes good sense. I'll come back to that later when we talk about Hume's scepticism, and I'll be referring back to the final slides on this handout. See you next week.